We are glad you're with us this morning. We're glad for those of you who are watching online that you join us to worship as well. I did want to say before we dismiss the blast students to get into the word today, because uh, Mike said to all of us, and we'll all take the blame on this, that uh, is there anything else you want to announce? And we're all like, no, we're good. But then someone texted me during the service like, is there a town hall today? <laughs> like, yeah, there is. So uh, thanks to the person that texted and reminded us to announce that. Immediately after service today, we're going to do a, a Family Bible Church town hall, talk about what's going on in and around Family Bible Church, how things are, what we're looking at for 2021, because believe it or not, 2021 is coming. It's going to be awesome. And uh, so if you are uh, in the room, we're gonna, we brought some food. We're going to have uh, a light lunch. and of mighty men, of horses, and of riders, and of all the people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophets who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. And with these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on a seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people in the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had also been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to that which they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown also into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. 
if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown also into the lake of fire. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a chance to hear more from your word and to uh, think more with you about the way things have been, the way things are now, and the way things will be in the future. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would give us your own teaching that each of us, whether we're here in the room or listening online or listening later in our own schedule, that there's a moment that we are attentive to you and what you're doing. And the Lord, in those moments, you would be our teacher, our Lord, and our Savior, that you would instruct our soul in ways that cannot be undone by this world. For this time now, I pray that we would be attentive to your Holy Spirit. You promise if we ask you for wisdom, you will, get, you will give it. And if we seek you, you will be found, that you will reveal yourself to us, Lord. So would you do that now? We ask that you would teach us from your word, and we pray this in the mighty name, the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to remind everyone where we picked up. Are we good to go now? Awesome. Thanks, guys. That's a hero's work back there. Uh, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we left off um, with the great hallelujah. And, and I told you last week, and if you weren't here, hopefully you were, but I got a chance to learn something, which I always do, and it's that the hallelujah is only recorded in Revelation 19. So, like, that's pretty unique stuff. But I want to remind you, and Mike shared it this morning a little bit, that the time of great suffering was a time of great praise, and that the world was, was singing, shouting, hallelujah, that the people being redeemed were singing hallelujah to the Lord. It means praise Yahweh. Who was saying it? There was the great multitude, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and indeed the voice from the throne saying, worship God alone. As a matter of fact, in the middle of it, the very last thing that happened is John got so caught up in the moment with everything being praised, he fell down to praise the one doing the revelation. And the, and the angel's like, don't praise me. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. And so it's important that we stick that context of where we're at in the story of Revelation because we're ending with this command to worship God. That's what's being taught. Worship God in your life. We, uh, we can so easily get distracted and, and worship other things. Matter of fact, the question that I want to start with today is the question that we ended with last week, and it's this. Who do you worship in your life? Matter of fact, maybe in God's divine timing, you're experiencing this week who you worship in some way that's uncomfortable for you. Who do you bow down to in this life? Who do you submit to in this life? And you might think, well, there's people who submit to those, uh, those people. I don't submit to those people. I submit to somebody else. And I go, ooh, be careful. And there's probably a few of you who say, I don't bow down to nobody. Be careful. <laughs> do you submit? Do you bow down? Do you worship God? Because that's the standard of God's word, that he be worshiped. And so we pick up in that very thought of being commanded to not worship anything in all creation but God, God's self. In the middle of this, then, John continues to see this vision, and he says, I saw heaven standing open. Matter of fact, I want to back up one verse. I want to read 10. At this, I fell at the feet of, to worship him. But he said, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And this is, I want to catch this real quick. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I just want to hit that one more time. And then John says this. So the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then he says, I saw heaven standing open. The word is being opened. 
having been opened, past tense, the reality that John saw with his own eyes, and a white horse whose rider is called. And we're going to get some attributes of the rider on the white horse here. Now, this is not the first white horse we've seen, right? But this is the white horse that the rider is on, and the, the, the words are attributed like this, faithful and true faithful and true. We sang that song this morning. It says, you are faithful. So many times we think it's our job to be faithful. And what we have to recognize is, first of all, that God is faithful. He's faithful to his people. The word is uh, pistis in, uh, in the Greek, and, it, and it's an all-encompassing um, knowledge or, or convincing of what is about to happen. And then the second word is, is equally important, faithful and true. So it's not faithful in false things, but faithful in the truth, the absolute truth. And that word truth there means that he reveals himself to us in this life. So that means no matter where we are, what we're doing, God himself is revealing himself. As a matter of fact, what it means is this past week, if you're paying attention, God's revealing himself to you in this last week since we talked about who we worship in this life. Look at this. With justice, he judges, and I'm going to add that justice in the second time. With justice, he makes war. We have this uh, rider on the horse who judges injustice and makes war injustice. You know, get that thing like, don't you judge me. Here comes a judge that can judge you. That, that, that kind of response we have to people like, don't judge me, is, is an understandable response to other people, but not to God. God, in his right authority over us, does indeed judge us. And don't, don't come on, don't tread on me, bro. He does tread on us. He makes war that's what he does with pure justice. Look at the, what verse 12 says. His eyes are like a blazing fire. It's pyre. And on his head are many crowns. This was a funny thing, by the way, I found. It's the eyes of fire, right? There's many crowns on his head. And we're coming up on, uh, on Christmas, if you can believe it. And I think it's a Christmas song. I was trying to think what the song was, but there's a song about the, or it's a hymn, one of the two. The, the mighty diadem, is that the word? That's a really funny word. I sang it, I'm like, what is the diadem? And I can almost remember the tune right now, but I can't, I can't pull it out of my mind. But it's this, uh, the word, the diadem is crowns, right? You maybe remember that song that says, crown with many crowns. That he's wearing many crowns when he arrives, this faithful and true writer with justice making war and judging the world. He's wearing many crowns. He has authority in this place. There's no place, listen to me, that he does not have authority Check this out. Here's the next thing. I think this is like the fourth or fifth. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And I, I love that idea that even in this moment, John sees it, that, that there's um, the white horse and the faithful and true rider riding on it. And in the middle of all the crowns and the glory and the flaming eyes, that in the middle of all that, there's something still that's a mystery about who the writer is. There's something still in that moment that for all the revelation that is only known to the one on the horse. This is the kind of the struggle of man in a bit, right? We want to know. We want to know everything. And there's still some mystery. Even in that moment, there's still mystery that's known only to he himself. The word in the Greek is the double he himself is the only one that knows his name, the name written upon him. That means the name, the purpose, the plan, the intent, the, 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 the path, what's about to go down is known to him himself. This is not a passive, not a want to see what happens here. He's knowing all things, including his own role. 
He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and here it is. And we're going to come back to that dipped in blood thing in a minute. And his name is the Word of God. That's his name, the Word of God. So he's, he, he's a mystery, known only to himself. He's got many crowns. He's faithful and true. He's waging war and uh, judging with justice. And his name is the Word of God. Okay, last week I said how we tied uh, hallelujah uh, back into the Psalms. I want to read for you this morning because if you go, his name, who's this rider on the horse? What, and this is all going to tie together here in the book of Revelation, which should be no surprise, but it's just exciting to me when we see it happen because this is John on Patmos, right? Getting the revelation from, of God in the middle of persecution, great persecution. And he's written letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor saying, be steadfast, be faithful. God is in charge. Listen to John, the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing that's been made has, was made. In him is life, and that life is the very light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He was a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man and woman was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him or rejected him. Listen to the word. Yet to all who received him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor human decision, nor a husband's will, but children born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God. And so we have this kind of revelation of Jesus coming into the world, and now we have this revelation of Jesus coming into the world, right, as the very word of God. And so you, you have to make those connections and go, oh, yeah, that's right. That's this Jesus. But we've, it's, he looks different here, right, the way he comes on a white horse. Let's go on. Uh, the armies of heaven then were following behind him. Now listen to this. And, and they were riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. I'm going to read one more verse and we'll talk about this. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations. So now you get a really weird image. And I've drawn this image before trying to understand it. Like I drew, I didn't put it on the screen today, but I drew a picture trying to understand this and the fiery eyes and the sword come out of the mouth and the horse. I can't draw horses, by the way, or dogs. I can't draw anything like that, right? I could draw stick people. That's about it. But I drew this image and the more I drew it, I was like, wow, that's a lot to deal with. You know, like even in my like first grader penmanship, it's a lot to deal with. What does this look like? But he himself is being revealed for the truth of who he is. But I want to I say something, that the armies of heaven are following behind him. And you go, yeah, here comes the big fight, right? Um, and, uh, but they're, wearing, they're, riding, they're also riding white horses, but they're dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, I want to make a distinction here between the clothing of Jesus and the clothing of those riding behind him. They're all on white horses. That's true, right? 
But it says, interestingly, his robe is dipped in blood. And you might think with me, like, well, that's right, because it's the covering of Christ. And it's like, you know, he, his people were covered in the blood of the lamb, and that's what we're, how we're sanctified and purified. But the word dipped is different here. It, it, it gives us the image of just the bottoms of his robe, right? He's dressed in glory. He's wearing a robe. And you remember it says, um, the, the robe is, is uh, we read it already, but the robe has written on it, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we have this robe written. Let's just read a few more verses, and then we'll talk about it. He will, roll the, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he has this robe on, and on the robe is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but it's dipped in blood. And you say, well, why? Why is it dipped in blood? It's right there. And the second part of verse 15, because he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And I told you in Revelation, the God Almighty there is not the same thing as the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. The God Almighty is the ruler of the universe, right? So why I want to make a big deal about this? Because when Jesus comes, he's coming to bring righteousness to this place, and he is the only one who is going to tread the winepresses of the wrath of God. It's actually a prophecy, I think, from Ezekiel fulfilled here, where it says that only upon, he will be the only one treading the wine press. And you know what happens when you're treading the wine press? Things splash up on you. Why make a big deal about this? Because what does it say about the saints following him? What does it say about the army of heaven following him? What are they dressed in? Are they trotting on the wine press? They splashed up? No. It is Jesus Christ alone that brings the vengeance of God. It's Jesus Christ alone that brings the righteousness of God. And we have to get that through our head because we're, I'm going to go do a righteousness. No, you're not. You know what you are? You are dressed up on a high, on a white horse, a high white horse, right? Can I say that? And you're dressed in linen means like cotton, nice, nice clothes, and you don't get dirty at all. You just follow the one that's making the path. We sang that song like he fights. The battle belongs to the Lord, right? He fights. What are you there for? Listen, in your life, what are you there for? You're there to watch the Lord fight. You're there to go, praise God. Look at him go. That's what you're there for. Have you ever seen that? Uh, uh, they have the, the uh, this is what made me think of. Have you ever seen that when you come, when you go to, a, you watch a fight or something, and those guys come and they get the big hood up, right? And you're just there, you're just there to cheer, you know? But that dude's there to fight. You know what? If you're in a, if you're in a stadium full of thousands and thousands of people, you know who you don't want to be? You don't want to be the guy getting in the ring against that dude. <laughs> Especially if the, all the stuff on his jacket's true. You don't want to face him. The, um, What's that saying? I heard somebody say this this week. They said, um, I'm here to uh, uh, chew bubblegum and kick butt, and I'm all out of bubblegum. That's what that dude's doing coming into the ring. Do you know what I mean? When Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to play with people. He's like, I'm here to win, and there's an enemy that's going to be against me, and the enemy's going to lose. And so what's your job to do? You're cheering for the champion. You're like, yeah, he's the one. He's going he's gonna to win. And on his name was written, listen to the word, what it says, king of kings and lord of lords. It's written not just on his robe, but on his thigh. And the saints are there just to praise him. The, the armies of heaven are there just to worship him and to acknowledge what he's done. 
what he's going to do. Catch the words, because we can say them, and they, they become so kind of, like, we just say them. He's the king of all kings. He's the commander of all commanders. The word Lord is kurios. He's the one who's in charge. He, he, he demands things be done, and they're done. His will. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is the one that, tread, that treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now I want to say one other thing. What is this sword coming out of his mouth? Because it says the sword will strike down the nations. And it's his very pronouncements. The, you know, he's treading out the winepress of God's, the word is um, uh, the passion, his, his kind of hot passion, like anger against those who are rebelling against him. But the word of God, coming from the word of God, is what strikes down the nations. This reminds me of the passage that says, your word is like a sharp double-edged sword. It separates bone from mar- marrow, right? It cuts deep into our lives. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the scripture and I'm reading and then it just gets me and it gets me. Maybe you've had that experience. It's the word of God from the very word of God. And so God speaking with a sword in his mouth is striking down the nations. That means what's doing the, the work is the testimony of Jesus or the testimony about Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and uh, so, so we have now Jesus coming on the white uh, horse and he's coming to, uh, to um, strike down the nations. But there's a second part to that and I want you to see this contrast. It says, out of the mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down nations. And this next ver- thing is in quotes, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. And it's a quote from Psalm 2.9. And I was like, wow. And I always thought, what's that mean? He's like, I got a stick. He's like, ruling with a stick? I got a big metal stick and this is my talking stick and I can talk with it. That's not what it is. Matter of fact, I was stunned to realize as I was looking into the Greek that it's when the word rule over them means to shepherd them. To shepherd them. And, and the scepter is a rod. And you know what a shepherd does with a rod? He guides the sheep. Do you remember a few weeks ago he said, uh, get out. <laughs> My people, get out of there. It's going to be destroyed. That's that iron scepter. I'm going to get you out. I'm going to move you. Now, I can tell you this. Sometimes if you're a sheep, I imagine if, you're, if your shepherd like strikes you with the, to get you to get, you're in danger, you might think, that's terrible. Why did my shepherd beat me up? But the truth is, he's trying to get to save you. He's not doing it to be ignorant. He's not doing it just to, for fun, hitting the sheep. He's like, you're about to go off a cliff. You, you, you people are stupid. And I'm going to save you with this iron scepter. And I think we have to see that because you go, wait, wait. So there's two things happening. He's cutting down the nations with the sword of his mouth, but he's also still shepherding the people with the iron scepter. He's going to rule them. He's going to corral them. He's going to direct them as he does all these things. See, this isn't some out-of-control scene. It's God doing God's work through Jesus Christ, and he's going to shepherd us. Check this out then, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, mighty men, of horses and riders, of the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. This language should sound familiar to us. Every time they list out 
the nations that are sinning against God. It's kings and generals and warriors and uh, small and great people, right? So there's no one excluded. It's always like these, sin, these kings have sinned and so has everybody else, right? So you don't get to say like, well, it's his fault. It wasn't my fault. And God's like, no, it's everyone's fault. But now there's this really interesting thing where in the middle of this, there's an angel in the sun and he says to the birds of the air, gather for the supper of God. And that ought to remind us last week there was a supper of the king. Do you remember? You were invited to eat at the wedding feast of the king. Will you come? I ask you, what party do you not want to miss? Like, that's the part you don't want to miss, right? But here, the birds are invited. That's strange, right? What's going on here? Basically, the way this works is there's two opportunities. You can sit and dine with the king, or you can be eaten on the battlefield of life. I want to say that again. You can come in and you can sit under his protection and under his plan and you can feast and you can be full and you can be satisfied and you can be safe under the kingship of God himself or you can die on the battlefield and be picked apart by the vultures. That's the imagery that's being had here. I thought how strange that he would invite the birds to come and eat. Do you know they used to be able to tell where the battles were because the birds would be circling? No, before we had GPS, that's where it's at. <laughs> and, if, and depending on which side of that fight you're on, you're either running away or running toward it, <laughs> right? If you're on the victorious side, you're like, we're going to go over there. And if you're on the, you're going, we're not going over there. There's bad stuff happening over there because the birds have gathered to eat. And it will happen. Verse 19, then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. I want to say something real quick here, by the way. We have this imagery of Jesus, the word of God, on the horse, striking down, treading out the blood of the wine press and all that. And, you know, you, you just go, oh, this is, what is God doing? I want to remind you that God did not start the war with humanity. <laughs> we started the war with him. We rebelled against him. We gather against him. We set up our kingdoms and our castles, and we say, no one's going to take over. We're, we're in charge of this. And God responds. Have you ever seen a big dog get woke up? Dog's just sleeping. There's some little yappy dog like, nick, 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 nick. The dog just lays there long enough, and eventually the dog just gets up and is just like, whoa, <laughs> right? That's what's happening is that God has been, uh, we've been attacked attacking God, we've been disobeying God, we've been obstinate toward God, and then he awakens and brings righteousness in his great passion and anger. And the anger is not like a human anger, it's like a righteous anger to judge the world. The big dog is awoken. That's what's happening. And everyone's going to pay. says the writer, so he, he didn't start the war. He's responding to a war we started with him. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. They gathered to do it. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. Remember those two items, the beast and the false prophet who had performed miraculous signs and led people away from believing in God. With those signs, with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive now into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. That becomes a location for the rest of our time today. They're thrown alive into the burning lake of, of burning sulfur, the fiery lake, and the rest of them then who are left, so everyone except for the beast and the false prophets 
a false prophet, were killed by the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds, here's the fulfillment, did gorge themselves on their flesh. And so they die on the battlefield, but those two leaders, those two deceivers, are thrown into the fiery lake. And so they, all the rest die, right? Verse 20. And then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss. Remember the abyss earlier, the dark pit where all these kind of things come out and attack humanity, and holding in his hand a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And we're going to talk, talk through this. But now you have the image, first of all, of an angel in the sun. And he says, come and gather and eat the flesh of kings and great and small people. And it happens. And then it says, then look, I saw another angel coming. This angel is undescribed. And it says he's bringing a great chain. And uh, it was really funny. But before we came here this morning, I had this thing out. Because I wanted to share it with you. And... This is not a great chain, but, but I had this out on the counter, and I forgot. I put it out last night so I wouldn't forget, and my wife says, what's wrong? Because <laughs> anytime this chain's out, something's gone wrong. <laughs> this is actually our toe chain, right? <laughs> Usually means somebody wrecked something, somebody broke something, and I've been out most of the night dragging someone back to some place that's, you know, not the side of the road, right? But you know what's funny about this chain is I brought this chain, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to bring that chain to show. Because can you imagine an angel descending from heavens, what the word says, with a great chain to bind up the enemy of God? Here he comes, right, uh, coming from heaven. And I'm like, that's awesome. And I took this little chain out of the bucket, and I looked in there, and I have a big chain. That's for my dad. My dad was a, a boat, a river guy. He had a big chain that held a big boat that whenever he passed, my wife goes, we knew that chain. I said, I don't know. And I put it in a bucket and took it home because it's a big chain, man. I mean, it's so big you can't even use it to tow a car. It's too big. It's too big. And then I thought about that chain, and I'm like, I'm not bringing that chain. That's crazy. I am not doing that. And then I thought, have you ever seen those barge chains? They tie off. They're huge. And I started thinking about this chain, which, you know, I think that's a reasonable size chain. I, it's not like one of those little plastic chains. You know what I mean? You could do stuff with this. And I think about dad's boat chain. And I think about those big barge chains. And then I think about the image of an angel coming out of heaven with a chain so huge that he can bind up that great serpent, the ancient serpent, to be bound and thrown into the abyss. Wow. I mean, I just want to get again the spectacle of it. Because we think we got big chains. You think you got big chains. Holy cow, here he comes out of heaven with a chain that he's going to bind. Look, who's he bind up? Look at verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, the angel that came down. The dragon is that ancient serpent. Whenever I was a kid, I, I had my favorite thing was, one of my favorite things was Spider-Man, and there was Draco. Draco the dragon. I had those records back in my day you play, and uh, I always freaked me out to listen to that part of it. Draco. I'm like, oh my gosh, Draco. That's what the word is here in the Greek. It's the dragon. I want to remind you who the dragon is being bound up by the angel. Do you remember the dragon in the story of Revelation? He was waiting to receive the child from the mother. Do you remember that? So that he could consume him the moment he was born. So that nothing that was predicted or prophesied by him would come to pass. And you remember that it did not happen as soon, it says in Revelation, as soon as the child was born, he was assumed into heaven. Like there was enough time for the enemy to get his plan. And now here's the same enemy being bound up. Who is this great 
dragon. It's the ancient serpent. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden? Did God really say not to eat from the tree or to touch it? Did God really say, you'll surely not die? That ancient serpent, who is it? Who is the devil? The word there is Diablo. Diablo. And so we have this ancient serpent that, that reminds us of the Garden of Eden, the very beginning of the fall of humanity. And then we have the, um, uh, the Diablos, which is the accuser, the accuser of the people of God. And then, and then who, who is what? Or Satan. See, and all of a sudden, the book begins to wrap everything together in a narrative. The Satan, Satanas, is the adversary this one who's had all this time to bring destruction, and he wraps him up. What does it say in verse 3? And he threw him into the abyss, and he locked it, and he sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. Thousand years. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Let's read on then. Verse 4. I saw uh, thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge, they're given authority. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And I'll remind you again, this should sound familiar because that's been the pattern since John first said why he's on Patmos. Why am I in the situation I'm in right now? Because of the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Those two markers have become the markers of the saints throughout the book of Revelation. And so here it says the souls of those who've been beheaded, that's real time or past tense, because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God, that they've, they've been killed, they've been martyred. What else? These who were beheaded had not worshipped the beast, or his, nor had they worshipped his image, nor had they received the mark on their foreheads, nor on their hands. They refused all of it. Who did they bow down to? Not the beast. Did not bow down to the beast at all. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's a thousand years again. We're going to talk about it. The rest of the dead did not come up to life until after the thousand years were ended. A thousand years again. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him, here it is again, for a thousand years. And we can go on. There's actually more to, to, to talk about with that. But there's this thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. Saw people who had not worshipped the beast, had not worshipped his image, had not received the mark. And then, verse 7, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to once again deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Battle against who? Battle against God. Who's Gog and Magog? Like, that's something I saw, and I'm like, wait a minute, who's Gog and Magog? This has been known to the Hebraic people. I think the way you say it is the Scythians, the Scythian people. They were a foreign nation, but they were known to, have, to be great warriors, and they were terrifying people, but they came from far off to wage war against God's people, so they knew Gog and Magog. And by the way, the, the Gog is actually the commander of that foreign army, and Magog are those who are fighting for him. Right? So it's not just these foreign adversaries are coming, but there's a commander commanding them to fight me, and they're, they're going to come from far off to gather for battle from the very four corners of the earth surrounding God's people and God's place. 
In number, they're like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of God's people. So you got the idea that God's people are encamped around his throne and the city that he loves. This would be Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown because, and they would be tormented forever and ever, day and night there. Um, so now you have the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon all thrown at the end of the thousand years into the, the fiery furnace or the fiery lake, I should say. Okay, I just want to pa- I'll go through that real quickly so we see all the kind of dramas happening, the people gathering. Now, this is the funny thing about Revelation. If there's anything people have talked about ad nauseum, it's this particular passage of Scripture. These few verses, that I heard someone say uh, there's more ink spilled in these, three, these few verses than all of Revelation combined, which is kind of funny because then we forget everything else that's happened in Revelation, which is worth knowing, yeah? Uh, so... What is going on with this thousand years? We call it the millennial reign. I put on the sheet, and I didn't pull it up earlier, but the three fill-in-the-blanks are word of God, a thousand years, and the book of life, right? That's what this today's about. So uh, we've covered the word of God, but a thousand years, I almost put 1,000 years, but it's not actually 1,000 years. It's a thousand years. The word means millennia. Actually, for you math people out there, it means 10 times 10 times 10. Okay, what's it matter, Bill? It's a thousand, right? Yeah, if you can do math, it's a thousand. Wait, wait. It means ten to the third power. Okay, let me let me lay out some things, and then I'll talk about. Let's talk about the math first, and I'll talk about the three views of the millennium. Um, the idea is that it, it, the per, have you, you know, if you rate on a scale of what? Hey, uh, yeah. How, how's your pain today on a scale of? One to ten. How would you rate that movie on a scale of? Well, that's, that's an old cultural thing for us, right? And the idea is that ten is perfection. But it's not ten. It's ten times ten times ten. It's a cube. It's in three dimensions, right? Or in three persons. I'm just saying there's lots of interesting imagery here. Once you realize that it's the millennial, the word literally means ten times ten times ten, or perfection three times. That at the end of the perfection three times, at that point then, that, the, it, the, uh, that Satan's going to be released for a short period of time and then condemned to the fiery lake. Okay, so that was interesting to me, that the, it's this kind of 3D imagery, you know, the Trinity. There's lots of things in there that are the perfection of the Trinity. So f- forever now, I'm, since this was written, scholars have been saying, well, has this happened? Is this happening or is this going to happen? And there's three positions that I did want to break out really quickly for you, and it's called premillennialism, uh, amillennialism, or postmillennialism. And I don't care if you know those terms or not. Someone said they have to know. You don't have to know those terms. It just means the question is, is this time whenever Satan's been bound um, for, a thousand, for a thousand years or for 10 times 10 times 10, is this a time that has happened already, that is happening now, or that will happen in the future? Why would that matter? And I'm going to ask those in reverse order. If it's to happen in the future, it means there's been no peace on earth. There's been no hope for mankind that Satan's been having his way with all of us this entire time. And we're waiting for the time that comes in the future whenever this, will, this thousand years of peace will happen. This thousand years of binding of Satan will happen. So the premillennials say, none of this has happened yet. We've never seen it. And then the amillennials say, it's happening or it's not going to happen. It's a perfect number idea, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a state of things, right? This 
this time that where Satan is restricted, bound, not set free, is happening now. And then there's postmillennial who say, no, 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 this happened way back before, but now we're in this time, and, and, and what, now we're in this time of, of God's judgment over Satan, and it comes to the church. I'm trying to explain this well, but it, it's, it's, it's been written so much about. And so those are the three basic understandings. But the truth is that we don't know. I mean, we have to discern some things that are happening in this life. And, and you would say, I, I, so I had some questions. Because I was thinking, well, how do you know if the thousand years is happening in the future, if the thousand years has happened in the past, or it's happening in this kind of current moment? And so I had some questions I was trying to use to discern from experience. Here's the question. Is Satan deceiving nations? Because that's what the word says. He'll be released to deceive nations. Before he was bound up with chains, he deceived nations. There'll become a time when he's not able to deceive the nations. So is Satan deceiving nations now? Has there ever been a time that he's not been deceiving the nations? Can you imagine that? Or is Satan totally unrestrained right now? Is he running amok right now without any, any restrictions from God? You see, the problem is that no matter how bad things get in this life, it could be worse. And I can tell you that that's true because every time you think it can't be worse, it's a little worse. <laughs> you go, oh, that was pretty good. How do we have a measure of how much God is restraining his enemy from destroying his people? I'm not sure we have a good grasp of that when it's happening, the restriction, the restraint. And then the last one, I think, is probably the most problematic in some ways because it says, what if Satan's already been condemned and we're just not doing a good? And that sounds very much like that kind of, you, you know, that um, uh, we are going to change the world, I, I think. That I don't see, I mean, good people have been working and it does not seem like the battle is over, like the condemnation's happened. So there's three, three things, but the funny thing is I didn't want to get stuck in that because I want to talk about this overarching image of God um, winning the word of God, uh, taking, and then now, and then the, this, this reign, this time. So we're going to end with this. After a thousand years were over, and, this, and the great serpent or the dragon was thrown into the, the, the fiery sulfur where he's being tormented forever. Then I saw, and we're going to end here, a great white throne and one who was seated on it. I want to remind you of some things in Revelation already. We've seen Jesus coming on the clouds. Remember that? Riding the clouds. And then today we've seen Jesus riding the white horse. And now you see one who came on a great, mega, white, pure throne. And this is probably the most profound uh, arrival that's demonstrated in the text right here. I saw a great white throne and one who was seated upon it. When you sit in your throne, you are ruling and you are reigning. And look at the way the throne arrives. Earth and sky fled from, the word says, his presence. The, the Greek says his face. That as the throne arrives, his setting ruling throne, that the very heavens and the earth flee from it. They run away from the face of God. There was no place left for them. For what? Heavens and the earth. They're, they're gone. They're wiped out. And I saw the dead, great and small, there it is again, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up her dead. And the death and Hades, remember death and Hades had ridden earlier, they gave up the dead that were captured in them. And each person, each individual soul, each individual ever created in God's image was judged according to what he or she had done. And then death and Hades, having served their purpose, were thrown also into the lake of fire. So now you have the beast, the prophet, the dragon, and death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire, burning sulfur, where there is uh, torment day and night forever and ever. And the lake of fire is the second death. And then the last thing it says is, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire as well for suffering for eternity. And I go, wow. Okay, so you have this binding, and then you have this um, uh, thousand-year reign, but then there's this condemnation. And, and I couldn't help but notice that there were these two things that happened. Then the throne comes, and everything is driven out, and all the dead are raised, and they're judged. And if you read it, it says they're judged based on the books. And it's not a book, it's the books. And so... You have all these books that people have spent. Uh, they're, they're written down their stories, right? And in that moment of judgment, and this is what I hear in this, in that moment of judgment, there's all these books that are recording the deeds of every soul, of every person, the stories they chose to write, the decisions they chose to make. I mean, and you go, I don't write a book, but guess what? We're all writing a book. We're all writing a book, Right? And there's this idea that what you thought was beautiful, creative, or right, or holy, or just, or what you did in obstinance and in a rejection of God, it's all written. And you have this image of the judge sitting on the white throne, having arrived, driven everything out and everything, and all of a sudden there's this great white uh, throne, and he begins to look and go, okay, okay, I, I see what you did here, okay? And you go, what? And I, when I hear that, I go, oh, God, oh, no. But, the word says, there's books, and then there's a book. This isn't the first time we heard this revelation. And this other book is not like those books. This other book is a personal book. Revelation 3 says, um, he did not blot their names out of his book of life. So I want you to see, you have all this stuff. You thought you were doing good. You figured out it wasn't as good as you thought it was. You did bad on purpose, and you deserve condemnation. There's all of this judgment. There's all of this right wrath. There's all of this ways that you, 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 know, you wrote your story, and then there's this other book. And this book is a personal book, and it's the souls of those redeemed. It's the ones that God wrote down, Listen to me, and the ones that he did not blot out. Like the Revelation 3 thing is scary, right? Like, God just goes, hm, you're out. We're over here like, I'm doing good. Work. No, no, no. Let me tell you, no matter how, and this is where I want to get this right. Because this not, we are not, this word says you will be judged for the works, but you will be judged for the works you did or you'll be judged because you're in the book of life. You reject this, you stand on this. What does the word say? And all, and anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Everything. 
everything. You see, and, and I want to say that because I ask, what are you counting on for eternity? I say this to you all the time, but like, what are you, what are you banking on? Are you like, man, I'm writing a good book. I'm doing good. I'm making the right decisions here. Are you going, oh, God, I, I, I'm in your book. <laughs> I'm a mess. I'm just in your book. Don't blot me out. Save me. Save me, Lord. Because, see, that's the right position. Here's the question. No matter how good your works are, are your works good enough? No matter how good your book is, is your book good enough? Let me flip that. No matter how bad your book is, no matter how bad it's been, can you not cast yourself on the mercy of God and say, God, I, I've screwed this up and I just need to be saved. You know, one of the things we get to see with people sometimes, they say, there's enough time left for me to repent for all the things I've done wrong. It's okay. Jesus died. You'd be free that he would write your name in his book. And he knew before you started writing yours that he was going to save you. Which book are you in? Which one do you want to be in? And are you wearing Christ? So I want to pray uh, with you today about that. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, hear your word and to you know, see the mystery of even Jesus, who he is, and what he's doing, and who you are, and what you're doing, and all the things that you've shown us. But Lord, what we know is this at the end of the day, that nothing that we've done is worthy of you and nothing that we've done against you is irredeemable by your blood. That you and your great mercy, if we would but humble ourselves and submit, what word came out of Jesus' mouth? Repent and believe good news, all nations. That we would turn to him and repent. Father God, maybe that's us today. Maybe we've been saying, my book's pretty good. And we started counting that, that book that we've been writing and not yours. Would you repent? Help us repent from that. And then, Father, those who are like, my book's terrible. I don't, I don't even want my book anymore. That they would know that you offer them new life in your name. Father, only you write on our hearts. Only you knit us in our mother's womb. Only you number our days. And so, Father, today, for anyone who's listening or watching or sitting in this room, if they don't know that you made them to be saved, that you would let them know you made them to be saved by you, that this is the day, this is the moment, that you're going to redeem their soul, write it in that book, that no one, not even that ancient serpent, could steal it away. May you be glorified as we continue to worship you today. May you bring sinners to repentance and faith in you. We pray it in your name. Amen.